Hello, greetings and welcome. I'm John Gibbons and this is Alchemy Radio. It's great to have your company again and we really hope you enjoy the show this week. It's a good one lined up, I think. We're free and on demand, as you probably know from iTunes and alchemyradio.net, our website. And you can follow us and join the Alchemy community on Facebook and Twitter. The address on Facebook is facebook.com forward slash alchemyradio.net. And on Twitter, it's very simple, at Alchemy Radio. So don't be shy and say hello. We exist thanks to your kind donations. So thank you to everybody who does so via our website. We're completely non-profit and intend to stay that way. So on to the show. Alchemy, Alchemy. This week's guest is Chris Fogarty, and we're going to be talking about a topic that is quite unknown to very many people. It's the Irish Holocaust. Yes, you did hear correctly, the Irish Holocaust. So, Chris, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? Thank you so very much for this time. Well, thank you for your time. And I stumbled across your work about a year ago, and I must say it was like a sledgehammer to the paradigm that I had grown up with with regard to the so-called Irish potato famine. Before we get into your work, Chris, I would like to know a little bit about your background, as much as you're comfortable about speaking with, because I ask every guest when they come on the show, how did they get from where they were to where they are now? So the platform is yours, Chris. Uh, Very good. Um, I left school at 13 in outside Castellan County, Roscommon, and became sort of the man on the land, cutting turf and spreading and bringing it home in the donkey cart from a bog from four or five miles away. And then when I was 18, I went back to Chicago where I was born and uh, became a carpenter and built a, a number of houses, quite a few houses here in Chicago, bought lots and built the house and sold them on Sundays. And then when my two older brothers got wiped out in the recession of 57, 58, I decided I would learn something a bit more with less competition. So I became a civil engineer mm. and started working overseas, mostly in Central and South America, also Borneo and different places. Before that, I had been drafted into the U.S. Army and served in the Occupation Army in France for a year and a half. Uh, came back to Chicago, and um, I was late learning about that also. I was doing my grandfather's biography, who, sad to say, was a British soldier. Uh, he was born in 1839 and retired from the British Army in 1881, the same year the British government dropped the cat of nine tails as a means of military discipline. And uh, he, he served in um, uh, removing the gold from the gold mines in Ballarat and Bendigo in Australia and uh, into the gold room in Melbourne for a few years. Then he went and fought the Maoris, again, sad to say, in New Zealand, mm. and then later served in India, where he marched back and forth across the country, served finally in Dum Dum, a suburb, a suburb of Calcutta, where the, his fellow soldiers and he learned to flatten their noses of their bullets to make them more lethal. And he was there, he was in the parades in which Victoria became the Empress of India in in 1875, 
to return to Ireland. My father was the last born of nine. And when my father died in the year 2000, he could say in Caramore Castle Reconscious Common, he could truthfully say, uh, rare, I think, on earth, my father was born 161 years ago. Not many living people can say that. So, in any, so anyway, I came back to Chicago after my last job working. I was the chief engineer on a hydroelectric project in El Salvador. I came back here, and the first thing I did was go over to England to do my grandfather's biography. While at the public record office in Kew in Surrey, England, I found that the regiment that he joined when he was... 18, had starved South County Galway in 1840, when he was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years of age. I was shocked to learn that, because I'd been taught in school that it was a famine. Mm. Uh, around Kasseri, they didn't talk much about potatoes, as a potato famine, but they did say famine. And the brother who taught us in school was later challenged by how can you say that Fogarty's pamphlet is correct, it was in pamphlet form at the time, when it contradicts Brother Enda, Marist Brother Enda, everything you taught us in school. To which Brother Enda replied, to his eternal shame, in my opinion, he lied for 50 years to all of his students. I had to teach, here's what he, he replied, I had to teach the curriculum as provided to me by the government. And that's his reply. That's his excuse for deceiving people, for covering up a genocide. And you wonder, what was the benefit? Usually when you sacrifice something, it is for a greater good. What could possibly be the greater good that anyone could cover up a genocide? The covering up of a genocide encourages more of them. And that's why this particular genocide must be made known to the world. The perpetrators have to be denounced. And in that way, we might be able to get governments to stop genociding as government policy. That's kind of my background now. So take it from there if you wish. Well, I spoke about a hammer bolt earlier on and you received your same hammer bolt as well because as somebody who has grown up in the Irish public school system, the basic party line, if you like, and this is what we're taught from the time we're five or six years of age in Ireland, is that the potato crop, which the whole of Ireland was completely dependent on, basically it was the only source of food in 1845 and the crop failed in Ireland that year and as a result half of the population of the country starved to death or were forced to emigrate to Britain and America and it was a great tragedy now you've used the word genocide Chris and that's a strong word so where is the difference there I mean how do we tally potato famine with genocide what actually went on here well seeing that the British government used over half of its empire army at the time to perpetrate that genocide one must call it genocide they were in ireland and they removed all of ireland's abundant foods at gunpoint the shipping lists from of of food crops from ireland are shown weekly in the london times at the time i i inserted the two or three of them into my new book i didn't go overboard because once you see enough thousands of of tons of material going on a regular basis, then you don't have to do the entire period. Yeah. But that's where it was going. So when you, use, when you use your troops to kill about five million people, that cannot be considered anything but genocide. And by the way, I don't generally use gen- the word genocide because no Irish person ever used it at the time. Genocide, the word genocide was coined post-World War II by Raphael Lemkin 
to de- to describe what Hitler had done. Mm. And there, so it seemed that it did not exist. I tend to use the word that was used in print at the time, and that is Holocaust. And of course, when the word Holocaust is used, most people think of World War II. But for those who may not be aware, the meaning of Holocaust is a great or complete devastation or destruction, quite often, or especially by fire, or it can be a sacrifice completely consumed by fire, a burnt offering, a mass slaughter, or the reckless destruction of life. And that's what we're talking about here, because there was a lot of growth and incredibly fertile land in Ireland, as there still is to this day. And it wasn't the case, Chris, was it, that it was just a country that grew potatoes and nothing else. There was an abundance of food, not only being grown, but taken out of the country while the general population starved by the British at gunpoint. Yes, that that is exactly what happened. And even though the English landlords who were in control of Ireland, all of Ireland's land at the time, some 90%, 95% of it, would tell the Irish, all right, the non-existent potatoes are yours, but everything else is ours because it's grown. You grow it on our land. And because you grow it on our land, we're taking it. And they had the army to back up that claim. Okay, so there are a couple of questions then that will frame this conversation, I think. Um, the first one for me certainly is, how were the British in a position to be able to do this? Was it the case that they saw, all right, the potato crop has failed in Ireland, let's get in there really quickly, steal all the food and let the people die because we don't like them? Or what was kind of the background to this happening? Well, I think that Tim Pat Coogan did a pretty good job of describing the murderous intent of the bureaucrats then running Trevelyan and the others then running Ireland, uh, because he did such a good job of it, I didn't bother. I just, uh, instead of showing what can be considered the intent as expressed in writing, I just used the deeds. So I let the deeds stand for themselves. And when you send in an army to remove the food, that speaks for itself. There's no, there's no way that can be misinterpreted. I don't think so. And it is the case, for those that may not know, that Ireland was an occupied country and the vast majority of the land was owned by British landowners. Am I correct? That is correct. And it's, in a sense, the proof of that is that the British government repatriated them nearly all between 1900 and 1910. But it, it, it spread a little bit before that and up until 1920. But they were all gone by 1920. And they were bought out by the British government at above market prices, I must add. And the, the recipients of that land uh, divided up into typically 28-acre parcels that were much later, more recent years, consolidated into larger, more economic holdings. But survival farms of 28 acres, typically with a couple of acres of bog, wherever the nearest bog was, they, those people, including my father in County Roscommon, were still paying rents every year to pay off, to amortize the money that was given to those old English landlords. So the rent, the, the, the removal of Ireland's agricultural profit continued into, in through the 1960s. Was it the case then that back in the 1800s and leading up to the genocide that was the so-called potato famine? By the way, it's not easy to get, to get fat for any person of, of Irish or of Irish descent to get the word famine off the tip of their tongue. It took me nearly a year. Now, if you're younger, you can probably do it faster. But we do have to excise, if we have any integrity, we must excise permanently the word famine 
regarding Irish history. I think so. And it is very difficult. As I said at the start of the show, it's about a year since I first came across your work. And I've researched it in as much depth as I've possibly been able to in the, the intervening year. And my default is still to return to the word famine because that's what we're brought up with. And we're taught this in school in Ireland from the moment we go into school, pretty much. I mean, this is drilled into Irish school kids. Yes, that's correct. I must say, there's something very, very sinister here, and I wish it were not true, but because it is true, it might as well, it might as well be made known. And that is that the Catholic Church hierarchy in Ireland have always been part of that genocide and have ever since been the main means by which it was covered up. When my wife and I put up a memorial at the murdered village of Lisnabinia in 2000, it was attended by a number, it was mentioned in the new local newspapers, Roscommon Champion and Roscommon Herald, mm. and a number of people showed up there on that day of the inauguration consecration by the parish priest of Ballymoe, County Galway. It's, on the, it's in Ballyglass. There's no more, Lisnabinia does not exist ever since then. It was wiped out. Nobody survived. But the, it's, so it's a monument is on the side of the road between Ballymoe and Glenamady in County Galway in a townland of Ballyglass. But on that day, a number of people showed up asking me if we would help them put up a monument over the mass graves in their areas. Uh, one was from a place called Ahildotia Kilkeel, Bantry County, Cork. Uh, they since have panicked away from the whole idea. There is a, a little marker on their own land, but they have been made too afraid by the local politicians and, I suppose, to go ahead. Another one was only a mile and a half away in Kilbegnet, Ballymore, County Galway. And what had happened there is that all the people who died in that area had been denied Catholic burial, Christian burial, and so they were buried outside the wall of Kilbegnet Cemetery. And the local people wanted a marker to honor those people who were murdered. And while we were getting organized, Somebody must have told the local priest, and he must have told the local bishop, Christopher Jones of the Diocese of El Fin, where it is, and he came and had the local county council uh, take down part of the cemetery wall and include what was probably part of that mass grave, and then had a big inauguration, sanctification, if you will, of the new extended graveyard in which he used the word children about 45 times in a short speech. He turned what was the burial ground of baptized Catholics who were murdered by a foreign power, he turned that into a grave of children, of unbaptized children. He lied about it. In other words, he lied. The bishop of, of, of it's hard to believe, but the bishop of, of Elfin lied in public about what was in that ground for which they expanded the, uh, the cemetery wall. Surely unbaptized children probably were buried there because they, they too were always denied Christian burials, mm. not having been baptized. But to turn a mass grave of baptized Catholics into something else is shocking. And that just happened in, late in the year 2000. 
and possibly not all that surprising given the track record that is being and has been over the last number of years uncovered with regard to the Catholic Church in Ireland. And when you speak about mass graves, it's quite topical. It was um, in May of 2014 that a mass grave of up to 800 dead babies was exposed in County Galway in the west of Ireland. And there was huge, yeah, huge in Tume, exactly, huge media outcry about that. And that was linked to um, the mother's and baby's home that existed at the time. But at no point, and I was familiar with your work at that stage, at no point in the Irish media or any media that I'm aware of was any reference made to any other mass grave or the genocide that was committed between 1845 and 1850. And you've done huge work in uncovering some of the mass graves that are quite literally littered throughout the country. So tell us a bit about those graves, Chris. Well, I've uh, my map for the last 20 or so years or 20, has shown about 170 of them. Uh, many of them on my map are... The ma- are the mass graves in workhouses and the people were literally sent there to be killed uh, maybe not intentionally you have to give that the food remover was deliberate absolutely intentional but the the deaths in the workhouses might not have been I, we don't know but the, the very few very few came back out of the workhouses uh, and they were they they were separated as they went into the work, workhouse um, all children were tiny children were kept together at around the age of five to to onward they were separated male and female and then husbands were separated from wives so the the parents did not get to see their children it's a little aside here might be useful to say that when Michael Davitt's mother when they were evicted in Strade County Mayo in 1845 I believe or six the father went over to England to find work, and they agreed that the mother and children would go into the workhouse in Swinford. When she went in there, she found that her little children would be taken away from her. So she went back out the same day and walked to Dublin, somehow crossed the, the Irish Sea, and from Liverpool she walked about 50, 60 miles to where her husband was living, had gotten, was going to be, have gone. Mm. Uh, and... So that's what she faced, and she decided that she would not do it. And she was very, very lucky. Michael David would not have li- have lived to do what he did had she stayed in that workhouse. So the conditions would... So in Castlery, the one I worked by, walked by every day of my school life, when I wasn't cycling, I walked most of the was, was uh, there, there are three or four burial grounds. Each of the sections of the workhouse had its own burial ground because they were slid out of window. The, the dying room in the adult part of it uh, was on the second floor, and they were in sort of a, a door, a window opened up, where the bodies were slid down a chute, and into a mass grave, and they were buried in a trench. And as the trench moved forward, just in piles, and as the trench moved forward, they would put a little soil over it and then dig forward, and that's how it was done. My school friend in Castlery, in the same class as me back in the 40s, early 40s, was Johnny Crahan. He became a, a contractor, an excavation contractor, who excavated for the housing development in the old workhouse grounds. And he just described to me years ago, sort of whispering, didn't want anyone else to hear, that when he when he dug up the little the bodies, he was excavating the toddlers' graveyard or mess, 
And he said they were all there jammed. They had been dumped, obviously, just dumped in a, in a one on top of the other. He said they were all jammed in together. It was the saddest thing he said he had seen, but they excavated them and moved them away to a dump pile somewhere. And at a certain stage in his excavation, it became a scandal, and the developer was forced to reduce the number of houses built there in Knockroll Castle Reef. And that's how they handled it. They, they excavated and dumped as many of the bodies as they could, but when they were stopped by scandal, so there are now there are three fields there in that area, in the workhouse area. They must be three uh, mass graves, and they would be of the different categories of people. So they were buried near immediately adjacent to where they died. And by the way, in in a church in Montreal, where the people lived, the Irish immigrants lived in tents as they arrived, got off the vessel in the St. Lawrence River, and they lived in tents. They, but they, there's a huge mass grave there, and they were all buried in the same general way. A trench would be, or a hole would be dug, and when that would be filled, they would extend off to one side and then keep it going like a trench that was filled with bodies all the way, with the excess soil just scattered around. But they would give it a shallow burial. Today, um, that extends over many, many acres, the one in Montreal. Uh, it is shocking to think of it, and the Orangemen must have a big presence in Montreal. And by the way, this is beside the Basilica of St. Paul in, in Montreal. And part of it, the only part that has not been built upon is a dog toilet, a place where you can bring and unleash your dog and let him relieve himself before going home again. That is the only green spot on what was the uh, mass grave of the immigrant Irish from those years. So the, 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 it's, an unending, it's an unending tragic story. Um, and I think that they were probably, probably treated as well as they could be there in Montreal, but the numbers were overwhelming. And by the way, I think in order to be fair to the Catholic Church in Ireland, after the numbers dying became so great that it was beyond all capability of ritual of any kind, they were buried. They had to be buried in mass graves at that stage. That is not to be held against the Catholic Church because they say they were overwhelmed. Everyone was overwhelmed by the sheer numbers. Yeah. But in the early in the early stages, they were intentionally deprived of Christian burial, perhaps to curry favor with the local English landlord. And it is quite amazing because traditionally, certainly growing up in Ireland, we would have been led to believe that there would have been a massive divide between the British establishment and the Irish Catholic Church. Yet it becomes quite clear the more we examine this issue that they were complicit and there was full knowledge and not just knowledge, but assisted cover up. So there was collusion between the Crown and the Catholic Church in Ireland with regard to the genocide that took place in the five years. Uh, that is that is sadly true. Again, to speak for the church, and I must say, I remain a Catholic, uh, despite these crimes by the bishops in Ireland, because only 20 years before that, they the price was taken off their heads, off their severed heads. There was there was a, the same price for a for a fox as a as a priest of, as the head of a Catholic priest for years, paid payable by the local res, resident magistrate, and so. It might be by that means that they kept their own heads. Uh, mm. That is that is about the best thing I can say about their collusion with genocide. 
To go back to 1945, Chris, was it the case that the Irish were almost subject to a form of pseudo-slavery in their own country at that time that the British were able to limit them to potato crops with regard to what they could eat themselves while forcing them then to produce such quantities of food and we will get into the quantities in a few minutes time that they could then remove for sale on the European market Yes they, they, had, worked, they had over time they had been able to work the Irish down to the very edge of death from starvation. And this was not merely starting in 1845. They had been ongoing for a century or two before that. Uh, they, they, they would rent a couple of acres to a, a, an Irish family. The Irish family were all living on tiny holdings and rented, of course. And the rent for that tiny holding on which they had to build their own little thatched cabin and grow their, and maybe keep a cow and grow some potatoes, the rent payable to the landlord for that was their year's labor on the landlord's estate, growing this abundant torrent of crops that were exported. How could anybody live under those conditions? They, well, the, the, the death rate was fairly high even before 1845. Now, however, despite the high death rate, there was also a high birth rate. Mm. So, so uh, uh, the population did increase. Despite these conditions, the population did increase until, until, the, food, until the potato crop failed. But it, it was horrendous. To th- uh, I have a few books here. One is done by, written by a... Stewart, I think it is. Anyways, he, he, he toured Ireland and it has provided a topography of all of Ireland. And it's, um, he describes Ireland in, 18, in the 1830s, and I'll tell you the title of the book in one second. He describes Ireland in the 1830s as, as the people being landlords, oh, by Lewis, Lewis was his name. Mm-hmm. And it's a three-volume set. In any event, he, he described Ireland as the people of Ireland as landlords, and that the Irish themselves didn't count at all. He barely, he did mention the, tor- the amount of, of foods and things uh, exported from each town and village, but he doesn't mention who created those, go- those foods. And it's all attributed to, the, to whatever landlord owned that area. And they tended to own in the tens of thousands of acres, uh, up to, well, the largest landholder was 200,000 acres of beverage in, in Connemara, most of it bad land. Mm-hmm. But a great many had, had 180 or 150 or 130,000 acres of land in Ireland at the time, and many of them did not live in Ireland. When Reverend Jonathan Swift uh, tried to work out something whereby the people of Ireland could live, and that was in the 1700s, he proposed that the, the, the landlords of Ireland, who were then living all across Europe, and particularly in England, go back to Ireland and spend their money there. His, his remedy for the situation was to have the proceeds of Irish product spent back in Ireland where it had been collected. Eventually, things, things got so bad that, that all, of, all the landlords were forced out. They had to leave. International opinion went so far against the British government that it had to take that action. It, it had become stunning. And what's more, the, the British government, who used to sort of revel in their pioneers living in Ireland, uh, re- bringing, bringing uh, 
British civilization to Ireland, when the word got out to the world what they were actually doing there, they all became Irish landlords. <laughs> and, and, and Irish landlords, there, once the, the torrent of food being shipped to England was no longer was no longer um, uh, deniable. Uh, authors such as like Christine Keneally, who once denied that any food, whatever, denied it as a glib myth passed down from generation to generation in Ireland that food was exported while the people starved. She, she wrote that in Fortnite magazine in June 1990 in, uh, regarding a Cormac O'Grada book, a fellow cover-up artist. Uh, she, she denied that if anything, food, whatever, had left Ireland in those years. She's been, she met many people on her book signing and book sales efforts down along the east coast of the United States. She met so many people carrying my pamphlet at the time who were going there to stop her to enlighten attendants, attendees as to how it happened, showing which British regiments starved which part of Ireland. Uh, she changed her story, but she changed her story to say all right, a torrent of food was, after all, was shipped to England and the world, but now she's saying that it was the rich Irish starving the poor Irish. So a brand new lie had to be created in the last 15 years or so. And that lie is that it was the rich Irish starving the poor Irish. And in fact, when you see, if you remember Blair's, Prime Minister Blair's apology, supposed apology. Yeah, pathetic apology, uh, to give my own opinion on it. Well, it was a cover-up. It was one more damnable lie in which he said that Britain stood by and didn't do enough while the Irish starved. Well, seeing that it had 67 regiments removing Ireland's food, to have done more would have been to have had, we'll say, 75 regiments removing Ireland's food. Yeah, I think there's a big so difference between not assisting in something you mightn't be fully cognizant of and actually committing that act blatantly and planning on the committing of that act I, yourself. And I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad you got that. That is crucial. That is crucial. But nevertheless, throughout Ireland at the time, and that issue was, uh, that po apology was issued by means of an actor who attended a Mill Street, this is in 1997, I think it was, in Mill Street, County Cork, at some old landlord's castle, where there was a three-day event that the Irish government promoted as a place to lay the ghosts, say, stop talking about the Irish potato famine, and its logo that was spread throughout the world was, this is hard to believe, two jiving skeletons. It, it beggars belief. It really, really does. Yes, that this is the supposed Irish government. It stuns, it stuns people of conscience. Ireland must be the only nation on earth that has ever uh, blatantly and very deliberately and worked very hard at concealing a genocide of their own people. To further frame the genocide, it is the case, isn't it, Chris, that the year before the Irish potato crop failed. In 1844, the European crop failed. And the result of that was that food prices rose greatly throughout Europe. So if ever there was a time to export food from Ireland, it would have been 1845. And of course, the crop then failed in Ireland as well. So for the British, there was massive, massive financial incentive for this to yes. actually happen. Yes, exactly that. Uh, you see, wherever the British Empire extended to, they would typically build railroads, but the purpose of the railroads was not to bring civilization, it was to, ext 
extract the good of the country. Mm. Where my grandfather served, sad to say, in Australia, they removed the gold and whatever else was there. And that is a story of empire. And there's a link to today's criminal empires. And it's largely associated with oil. Uh, the primary one is oil. You go in and you rob a nation of its oil. Um, the British Royal Navy was run gratis on fuel robbed from the Iranian population until 1953 when Mossadegh took over. And then the U.S. CIA and British intelligence pulled him down and replaced him with the Shah, a king, imagine. Imagine the, the Republic of the United States of America deposing a, a, a duly elected president, Republican president of a republic, and replacing him with a king. Well, it's that's so that's the old removed. bastion of democracy for us, eh? <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, in the last 15 years, and I don't want to get distracted here now, but the United States has become one with the old Colonel Blimps of England, and they're now attempting a, a world takeover again. And it's so sad. The same means are used extraction of natural resources resources and it goes on and on and torture the whole the whole range mass murders the whole range of crimes but i don't want to get distracted no i think you're dead right so while history may not necessarily repeat itself exactly the circumstances that allow the perpetration of these crimes upon the people do seem to repeat themselves and when lessons aren't learned the cyclical nature of it does continue so with regard to the extraction then of the natural resources of Ireland namely all of the food what type yes. of quantities are we talking about first off what was the population of Ireland um, at the beginning of 1945 Chris and then what kind of quantities of food are we talking about yeah. well there's some there's some uh, question about, about that Yet, in my opinion, the figures are clearer about the Irish Holocaust than they are about the Jewish one. And I would not want to take one thing away from the fact of the Jewish Holocaust. That was absolutely true. The, the numbers were into the millions. Uh, but the, the one in Ireland, it's, uh, it seems to be over five million were murdered. And another million successfully escaped. And I include among those, that five million murdered... Uh, those who those who were who died within a month of landing wherever they went, and of course, so many people who attempted to travel, in particular to the U.S., never made it to the extent where the ships that left Ireland on a daily basis were known as coffin ships. Yes, that is the case. They were mostly uh, British-owned ships. The Americans had a higher standard at the time. See, American-based ships had a higher standard of the at the time. The coffin ships were generally British ships, and many of them took the people to Canada. In fact, sad to say, the United States, after a year or two, uh, stopped further arrivals of starving Irish, and they went up the St. Lawrence River up to, to uh, Canada, St. John's, Newfoundland, and there up to, to Gros Eel, and many, some, there are thousands in Gros Eel downstream of Quebec and up as far as, as, uh, as Toronto and and uh, Toronto and Montreal. So all those three, huge, huge numbers died in those four locations, particularly the farther upstream. And of course, this explains why there are so many people around the world, an estimated 40 million. Ireland currently has a population of between four and five million, but 
upwards of 40 million people claim Irish heritage around the world and this is largely because of the events we're speaking about in this five year period between 1845 and 1850 Chris so we're looking at a population that still hasn't recovered to anything like the figures that existed prior to this genocide taking place what kind of food was being grown and how much of it was being grown and then subsequently taken out and sold by the British onto the European market while upwards of 5 million people starved Yes. Well, in my new book, which is, is just printed a couple of months ago, and there's, a, there's an edition being printed in Dublin as we speak. It might be completed now uh, because the postage from here was, too, too, was more than the price of the book. Yeah. Um, the, the amount of food, Ireland was a hugely agricultural country from one end to the other, except in mountain and bog. And my book shows every grain mill and every grain kill and every flour mill, and every cattle pound, and every wool processing factory in Ireland at the time, in in the townland that they are located. So there, are, when Cecil Woodham Smith, the most honest writer, the for, the woman who was slandered for the for two decades after 1962 publication of her The Great Hunger, she identified 13 British regiments in their forcible extraction of food away from the people. She was slandered for two decades, maybe three decades after all of Irish academia denounced her. And But she's the most truthful describer. But even she lies. She says, for example, by the way, when I read her book, I did, I did not stop using the word famine upon completion of the book because she buried her, part, her truths under under 440 pages or 450 pages of contradictory, contradictory falsehoods, falsehoods that contradicted her truthful parts. So she says, for example, there was no oats, no grain grown in County Sligo. My new book shows every grain kill and every grain mill and every flour mill in County Sligo. There were huge numbers of them. And it, it shows where they were by townland. I'd say in the typical townland you might know is a couple of hundred acres. And so it pretty well f focuses exactly where they were. And in fact, in 1946, when I first went to Ireland, I worked in the local grain kill in Temple Toher, Williamstown, County Galway, where my aunt's husband, Prince Burke, had my cousin and me, two 10-year-olds, raking their corn, raking their grain around on the floor, on the below, on the low, floor below, was a turf fire that he, for which he had brought a load of turf from the bog the previous day. And he was drying that year's grain crops and wheat crop the following day on that serrated metal floor. And when it was dry enough, nicely toasty dry, he, he shoveled it into sacks and carried it across the street, the road, to the, the mill, the grain mill in Temple Tor, which was working obviously at the time. At that time, there was another grain mill, O'Brien's Mill, about a mile away up upstream on the Kelsala River, uh, one in, in Clough outside Williamstown, one in Ballymoe, County Galway. So there were, there were mills all across the country. They show up on the Ordnance Survey map of Ireland that was, that was surveyed between 1830, starting in County Antrim, sorry, County Derry, and working south to County Cork, where it was completed in 1843 with, a, with the engraving and mapping done 
1845, immediately prior to the starvation. So that survey of Ireland shows where all the mills were and all the grain kills and everything else were immediately prior to the starvation. I worked and I saw the other ones that were shown on the Ordnance Survey map still working in 1846, in 1946, in 1946. So they were there, obviously, they were there throughout the starvation. They would only be there because there was plenty of grain there. And so I won't quantify in, ten, in tons because I don't know the actual tonnage. It would be millions of tons were shipped overseas, mostly to England. And, uh, and also millions of tons, in fact, tens of millions of tons of head of cattle. And um, that's, that cannot be disputed. All one has to do is look at the London Times and the various shipping newspapers. It's there for anyone to see. I didn't dwell on them in my book because I only put in a few samples. A few samples was adequate. So we're talking about huge quantities of food. So is there any anecdotal evidence, because we know it wasn't covered in the media of the time, of the reaction of the Irish to what was going on. Was there any kind of uprising? And whenever there's um, large-scale genocide, this is a question that always rears its head. Why did the Irish, in this case, allow it to happen? Well, uh, the first line of offence to remove the food were the constabulary. Only when they ran into difficulty, and that was much of the time, where the militia called in. The militia was another 37,000 um, member forces, uh, 37 of them, one for each county, plus two in Limerick, uh, two in Cork, and two in Mayo. And they, they were the second line of offense against the people. If the, those two forces combined were still having difficulty from the people, the British Army was called in right. from the nearest garrison. And, and so they, were the, they never failed. But there, was, there were deaths, but the press didn't cover them. There was a bayoneting in, in, in Connemara and of a few women and, and things. But um, I think there would have been a much greater resistance. But the, off the altars of Ireland at the time, the priests it were issued pastoral statements from their bishops saying, do not resist. And that is shocking. And this might seem like a crazy idea to anybody listening now, particularly younger listeners who might not have the same kind of reverence or respect for religion or the Catholic Church that existed at the time. But Ireland is a nation up until very, very recently that was as firmly as you could possibly imagine in the grip of the form of mind control practiced by organized religion and in this case and that case Catholicism so it was quite literally the case wasn't it Chris that if the church said that people were to do something people did exactly that and it was not questioned it may have been privately questioned but publicly it just wasn't yes but I must say uh, if it's mind control you must categorize me as partly mind controlled because I happen to have a certain reverence in fact plenty of reverence for all of the religious, almost all the religious people I've known. I've never known of a case of pedophilia. The priests and nuns that I've known, the Christian Maris brothers that I've known, have been the most beautifully dedicated people who have acted for me as an inspiration. And as when we were kids, we would save our pennies and give them to the, for the black babies when an occasional priest would come back from somewhere in Africa, Kenya typically, or Nigeria, and we would give our pennies to the black babies. There was, they had, the moral force they had 
was of the, that the church had was less fear of damnation, I think, than it was their the capital that they had built up by their good works among the people. Okay. And that can be a powerful thing in itself. Yes, that may, maybe the most powerful force of all. And the, and they had, and what's more, it was only twenty some years. In fact, less than less than twenty years, eighteen twenty eight, the price was taken off the heads of Catholic priests, and so they had been on the run. In fact, I don't know where you what you're from, Carlo. I think. Yeah. Now, in our part of the country, we had stations every every spring and fall, mm-hmm. and that would change from house to house. A different farmhouse in the area would have it, and about every eight or ten years, it would circulate back to the same house again. But their mass would be said in the kitchen. All the local people from a couple of townlands around would attend. And that was sort of a commemoration of the days when the when mass had to be celebrated uh, on the run as, 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 as um, fugitives from the local English and English supporters. Uh, but all I've known uh, have been fine. I'm so very, very, I mean, des- desolate to learn about the Episcopal cover-up of the pedophilia. Mm. That's here in the States also. That is shocking. But I have a, I include sections in, in my book. I, I refer in to a great extent to a book written in 1888 by a judge of the San Francisco Superior Court by the name of, of McGuire, in which he, the, the title of the book is Ireland and the Pope, A Brief History of Papal Intrigues Against Irish Liberty from Adrian IV to Leo XIII by James G. McGuire, the judge of the Superior Court of San Francisco. He, he, doesn't, he writes the same way I do, doesn't bother giving opinion because everyone has an opinion, but he provides facts. He provides papal rescripts sent to the Irish bishops, and they're shocking. They are absolutely shocking. You'd almost have to laugh so as not to cry. Mm. Uh, a, a, a bishop, a bishop, come to me in a second, from from Ossory, of the Dice of Ossory, right beside yours. Yeah. He, he, uh, he described and encouraged the people to not get caught up in this enthusiasm by these misguided people in America who were rege- rebelling against the good intentions of their mother country. <laughs> now you can tell wow. this would be written in 1776 they're very close to it and it's, it's a demand and then his follow up one about a month or two later is a is a, a banning excommunication of all white boys in the, across the country or at least sorry in that diocese uh, and by bell book and candle it, and it's, it's extreme in fact he calls for the destruction of of the fam of their families and all of their descendants. Well, then later, uh, in the 1880s, again, just prior to the to the this this judge publishing his book, there was a meeting about repeal in New York City, and uh, one spokesperson attended one of those meetings, and he was he was well regarded in Irish Catholic circles. And he died at one of those meetings. And the Pope required that the bishops in that part of New York not provide a Christian burial to him. He, they, they required a complete shunning 
of him and everyone associated with him. The very shunning, the very boycotting, and the word he used, boycott, because it just come out in Ireland, Captain Boycott. Mm. He used the word, the Pope used the word boycott, and he said that it was intrinsically evil in Ireland. And anyone associated with it in the States were also engaging in evil. But his, his, his prescription for it was an even more severe boycotting. <laughs> So what was what was intrinsically evil in Ireland to be used in Ireland, and by the way, the only non-violent means of bringing some kind of justice was to just withdraw their support to low to the English landlords, and that worked. That's how they got their freedom eventually. But what was what the Pope denounced and said was intrinsically evil in Ireland is what he called for in the United States his punishment for somebody who was going along with the one in Ireland. You couldn't make this up. <laughs> <laughs> no, you couldn't. You couldn't. It's so pathetic. And something it's else that I think is quite pathetic, Chris, and you touch on it quite a bit, is the Irish attitude to the famine. I mean, we've spoken about it already with regard to the people who were in Ireland at the time, but subsequent to, and I, again, I, I keep using that word inadvertently, famine, what has the Irish attitude been like since then and right up to contemporary politicians even? Because as far as I'm concerned, and I mean, I'm somebody who grew up in Ireland and went through the Irish school system, as I mentioned earlier. As far as I'm concerned, there, there has been no mention whatsoever that anything untoward, apart from the very unfortunate occurrence of the potato crop failing in 1845, that nothing else has happened. So there's obviously some sort of compliance are the Irish government or the organizations who perpetrate the lie are complicit in that lie so tell me about the Irish attitudes because I'm smelling a rat here there's something quite not right yeah well there aren't as many yeah there aren't as many rats as as are indicated the vast majority of the people in Ireland are honorable and they want they want truth be told it is that they're stopped from telling the truth by those who lead them both government and church. That's the, that is the sad fact. The people on their own will be fine. And in fact, we, my, my wife and I got up our first memorial in Ballyglass County, Mayo, for the murdered village of Lisnabinia, and there we did it with the help of, of a local football star, now dead, he's played for County Galway. And so I would not have expected it, but the local Fina Gale County Councillor helped us because it was on the side of the road itself, he got us the permit for it, and he and he and so that in there, the Galway County Council helped out, helped out, a local uh, celebrity sort of helped out, and the local parish priest in, participated in the consecration of it, with to, to in front of a large crowd on a Sunday afternoon. So that's the reality and the, the, the people who came to me looking for our support for them they must have recognized that they'd be up against some negativity they, they came to me to seek to overcome it but they then in turn they were terrorized away from it I didn't mention another couple the Neary couple from from Ballykilkline Strokestown County Riscommon wanted to have a memorial put up at their mass grave but Later, a, a team of, I'm very sorry to say, University of Illinois professors were excavating the long-gone village of, of Ballykilkline, where all the people once lived, on the side of a lake there. And they were 
intent upon doing what they finally produced, and that is that is a falsified proof that the people grew nothing but potatoes. After a few years of summers digging there, they brought all of their artifacts into the Percy French Hotel in, I think, a Strokestown. I attended it. I was visiting my father at the time. And every piece of every artifact had a little label, a little card beside it, identifying it. All but one artifact, which was left unidentified. And that was a reaping hook, what we could now call a sickle, like the hammer and sickle. When I was young and on, they were called reaping hooks. And in fact, my mother and all of her siblings used to use reaping hooks, which was the more, the more, the less wasteful way to save a grain crop. The more wasteful way eventually took over for greater production in the scythe. So the two-handed cutting instrument, the scythe, took over in time from the reaping hook. But there was a reaping hook in every in every farmhouse in our part of the country, and I know because I used to mow meadow and and do plowing and. And uh, my father and I bought a thrasher, and we thrashed for County Mayo all the way through and Roscommon up into County Galway for a couple of years. And even in all those houses, there was always a reaping hook. But this reaping hook at, on display by these university professors was not identified. There was no name on it. Now, it was maybe a little bit harder to, to perceive because the wooden part of it had long since rotted off. There was only a tiny little shaft of steel going down there, but the shape was perfect. So I said, well, this is a reaping hook. The professors did not want to know. And in their final work, a combination of film and a book, they do not mention the reaping hook because that belied their entire purpose in being there. So the, the, revision, the Irish revisionist crime against history has spread to the United States, I'm very sad to say. Plus, it's a silly argument because it's a documented fact that the British were taking these huge amounts of food out of the country at the time. So, I mean, it just doesn't stand to reason that nothing else could have been produced bar potatoes. Well, well if, if nothing was produced other than potatoes, what were the 67,000 British troops removing? From exactly, exactly. Why were they even there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you have it. I mean, I don't spend any time trying to persuade. I let the facts speak for themselves. Mm. One documented fact is that the lie has been perpetrated right up until the present day in that the vast majority of Irish people will have never heard what it is we're speaking about today, Chris. So why do you think that is? Why do you think the truth hasn't been uncovered? What's the benefit to the powers that be, if you want to call them those, in Ireland to continue the myth and the lie that is the so-called potato famine? Well, that's something we can only speculate about, that their lying is undoubted, and that they only tell as much truth as they're forced to tell is also cannot be disputed. But why, when the last of the children of survivors, of Holocaust survivors, died, my father's, my father's father lived through it. He was a boy uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years of age when he lived through it he passed on the word to my father my father died in the year 2000 but he was in his 97th year so you could say in the 1970s the last children generally of the survivors died off that's when the revisionists went to work and, and why the Irish government promoted revisionism 
a, a falsification of their own history, we, we can only speculate. I don't know. I would suggest a combination of bribery and blackmail. Yeah, and I think fear is a powerful driving force and even those at the top are susceptible to fear in the same way as the population of Ireland in 1845 were at the hands of the British soldiers and constabulary. Well, now maybe you can help to teach me something. How, what can make the Taoiseach of Ireland afraid to tell the truth about what happened to his own people? It's a very good question. It's something I've often pondered myself. And aside from, and it would be purely speculative, that somebody somewhere has something on him, I don't think that that can be the case all the time. And that, that is a conspiratorial attitude um, that I don't have any evidence for. I do think when it comes to politicians in Ireland, I think they're largely quite a clueless bunch with regard to the mechanisms and how the power game works globally. And I also think that with regard to potentially rocking the boat or any accepted norms or paradigms, I think that they would be too fearful that coming out and going against the grain would be too much of a sucker punch to the psyche of the nation and it would reflect badly on them and then potentially it would affect their personal careers as politicians. I do think that career politics, such as it exists in Ireland, whereby there are political dynasties that exist throughout the country of Ireland and people will be elected based on their name rather than policies and that, I think, is set to continue for generations to come. And I think that there is a huge focus on what has come before with regard to politics in Ireland. And I think that many politicians, certainly at the moment, would be too fearful of rocking the boat and affecting their vote. So having given it quite a lot of thought over the years, I think that's why people are so fearful to speak out in this country. Well, the Irish might like to be abased, but the Irish Americans do not. And, and the notion of famine uh, insinuates, it implies... Uh, cause of death, terminal stupidity. When you grow only one crop, which is which is how the lie has it, yeah, that, and and that's a failure-prone crop, and then that crop fails, you fell into a lethal trap of your own making. That says national Irish stupidity, mm. and that won't work in Irish America. Once they get the word, and, and it's spreading here in the states, once that word is out, they will no longer accept their children being denied equal treatment in university applications if they have Gaelic names, Gaelic last names. Because those who believe potato famine and famine deaths, a corollary of that is Irish stupidity. They go together. Yeah. And, and if, the, if the people in Ireland are happy with that, the people in Irish Americans will not be happy with that, are not happy with that. And I think that's to the credit of Irish America because there is an attitude that exists, in my opinion, and it is just my opinion, many people will disagree with me, but in Ireland, I think there is a general apathy, not just with regard to this issue when it's raised, but with regard to any issue that rocks the boat. We always hear about the traditional fighting Irish. I've yet to see that fighting Irish spirit. While I have great affection for my fellow countrymen and women and I think that we have so many talents and gifts to bring the world I also have a major issue with the collective 
Irish spirit in that I think it has been so downtrodden over so many years that there's almost an ingrained or a subconscious subservience within us. And while we will complain and complain with gusto in private, in our own homes and behind closed doors, when it comes to actually taking action and acting upon the will that exists, that's what's lacking at the moment in the Irish national psyche. The will exists, but the action does not take place. And I think it is to the credit of Irish America that they always have been an active group and an active people. Well, we are, but however, the, the, the Brit-Irish government, and I often refer to them as the Brit-Irish government, that's say that the two governments working in concert, Yeah. they, they now have spread their, their falsification of history over here into our, as I mentioned, University of Illinois involved in, 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 in participation with that falsification of the starvation of the area around Strokestown, Country of Common. And, and by the way, that was a, we, we lived just about eight or ten miles away from the edge of that, of that estate. That was called the Pakenham Mahan Estate. Pakenham was the same family. They were they were there in Strokestown, in Antrim, and in Castle Pollard, County Westmeath. General General Pakenham led the British Army that attacked that died in the attack on New Orleans in in eighteen fourteen or eighteen fifteen. And the notion that these were Irish landlords is shocking. But they, they extended, it extended that close to us, so we, we knew a little bit about it, but the Irish government and those who have brought that up in recent years have dropped the word Fe, uh, Peckenham from the name of that estate. It is now called the Mahan estate because the Mahan is a more Irish name. In, in other words, it tends to provide a, a false support to the notion that these were Irish landlords. And that, that the original man came over from England along with Cromwell mm. in 1840, in 1848, sorry, 1647 or 48. And, and, uh, and he was given that land there as a result of his work for Cromwell. So, that, so he came from England along with them. So the notion that, that somehow these were English landlords, is he, it is even defeated even when they use the word man to make their false point. Uh, now, however... Five Catholic families were granted person, legal personhood um, when, the, when the British were at their height, in, when England was at its height in Ireland. All the rest of the people of Ireland were legally non-persons. So that the killing, the murder of any Irish man, woman, or child was not a murder because you have to be human to be murderable. And the Irish, the entire Irish, except for five families, were not human, were not legally legal persons. And that went on for centuries. So, Chris, it strikes me as almost the perfect crime or the perfect Holocaust. <laughs> the title of my book happens to be Ireland 1845-1850, The Perfect Holocaust, and who kept it, quote, perfect, unquote. What can people do to try and get this word out there or what needs to be done how can this be changed because if met with resistance and there would be a certain amount of resistance to this as there is with anything that breaks a paradigm or goes against the grain how would I mean if somebody turns around to you Chris and says well this is just a load of nonsense it's hocus pocus I'm not interested in your facts and your figures I went to school and I was taught that there was a potato famine and that a load of people died because of that and that it was just the stupid Irish what would you say there? Well, 
I would never, I would never argue with such a person because there, there, there's a certain percentage of the population that are immune to facts. So mm. we have to let them go. Um, I'd like to give you a little background here as to exactly that condition. There's a Catholic priest who founded a parish in Venice, Florida, whose whose father was from Kerry and his mother from father from Limerick, his mother from Northwest Mayo. He wanted, after reading my book, he thought he would like to put up a memorial at the Holocaust mass grave nearest to his mother's birthplace to honor them and as a sort of an honoring of his mother. He contacted his cousin with whom he has visited in that part of Northwest Mayo and the local monument maker, this is the only one in the town. And they were dragging their feet, they just simply were not replying. And he, he, he wrote to them two or three times, emailed without reply and finally got one back that told him that the parish priest of that town has told him, all right, go ahead with that memorial if you're going to, but carve famine into that stone. Do not carve Holocaust or genocide into it. And that's the parish priest. So we'll have to, I, I know we won't have to, we won't have to defeat the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church must be shameable. In other words, this is not like, like the pedophilia. It was all over. It, it was ended by the time the cover-up took place. But the cover-up of the mass graves of Ireland and their completely overgrown, weed-filled, intentionally neglected state is, is recoverable. And what's more, to, to keep them unmonumented and ignored and in their neglected state will require a continuation of the lies by the Catholic Church. And I don't think they're up to it. So therefore, I'm not mentioning the name of that town because the priest in Florida thinks that the priest in Northwest Mayo will soon come to his senses and will soon stop lying and become a, a real Catholic priest. So I won't name him because he's, because I don't, there's no point in shaming people who are about to come to the truth themselves. And I'm betting, and the, cat, and the priest in Florida is betting that that priest in Northwest Mayo will come to the truth of his own volition, or maybe from fear of being shamed. I do a column in a, in a local Irish-American newspaper for the last 20 years, and with the, with, the, with the okay of the priest in Florida, I will be exposing that priest in Ireland at some stage if he does not come to the truth himself willingly. Do you think it's the case, Chris, that the Irish Holocaust was a case of the British trying to get as much money as they could with rising food prices and that the deaths of upwards of 5 million Irish people was a byproduct and that they were collateral damage? Or do you think it's something even more sinister and it could be classed as a form of ethnic cleansing? Well, I think both applied. Uh, one thing that cannot be not denied is that their behaviour as, as empire was the same in all countries. They robbed the local people of their output. They took whatever of value, they, they stole whatever of value was, was stealable or robbable. Mm. That, they did that, that's not, that's not in dispute. Whether they intend to kill them or not, I think is, is neither here nor there. But when you remove a nation's food and then those people then starve to death, <laughs> you have to say that the British might have known that when, when people don't have food, they die. And if you're removing it at gunpoint, you are a murderer. That's not disputable. They can, try to, they can try to avoid it, but they can't deny it. 
you know, I can't, I just can't find the names of those families, but one is O'Connors of Connacht, Clanalis Callis Castle still remains, and, and, and the, the last descendant of the High King of All Ireland uh, died about 40 years ago as a Jesuit priest. But they, they, they sold out. They uh, conceded and went along with the, with the invaders fairly early. Uh, another one is Melachlan, uh, also called Kavanaugh from Leinster. Um, but one might think, I always thought that the O'Connors of, of um, not the O'Connors, the O'Connells, of Daniel O'Connell's family must have been, must have been collaborators because how else could he have gotten an education at a time when it was a felony crime in Ireland to educate your Catholic children. And I have since found out that his parents and grandparents, Daniel O'Connell, were liege to Lord, to one family who owned 180,000 acres of Kerry. And, that, and they had two titles. One was Lord Shelburne, and the other was Lord Lansdowne. And they owned about, about 100,000 acres of Kerry. And so being liege to those people, in other words, being, being the, the hitmen or the, the liaison with, the, with the, those two, that lordly, lordly family, they were allowed to educate their children. And so Daniel O'Connell was almost unique in Ireland at the time. There were very few who were not illiterate at the time. You know how they went to hedge schools. Amanda uh, Sullivan did a, a little couplet about them. Sheltering under the nearby hedge or stretched on mountain fern, the master and his student gathered feloniously to learn. They met outside because if they were to be seen by any, any of the collaborators, they would be killed because education at that time was a capital crime. And so they would scatter in the same way that the masses were said outdoors. Um, in their mass rocks and mass pits and mass hills of Ireland. And were, so the outdoors, so that they would all scatter and the, 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 the finders would only catch one or two. It's a, it, Ireland, I wish I never learned Irish history. It is shocking in its depravity. It, the, the injustice, the, the murderous injustice went on for centuries. And in a sense, in a sense, I would have been happier to have never learned it. I know exactly what you mean, and I try and tally that with the way Irish history is taught in school to kids. There is no sense of outrage. There's no sense of shock. There is no sense of, well, this was a great injustice. It's almost told as if it's fiction, a fairy tale, and something that we can just throw away. And I think as a result of that, very few Irish people, and this is a broad sweeping statement, and I leave myself open to mass outrage with this one, but in my experience... I think, in a broad sense, Irish people don't have much of a sense of history with regard to our own country and what has gone on down through the years. And I think that's largely because of the way it's taught or not taught, as the case is now. Uh, yes, that, that is, that's the way it is. And, and um, if Ireland is going to establish itself as a serious nation, it will have to get rid of Ruth Dudley Edwards, um, Ograda, Christine Keneally, all the major big lie operatives. Um, 
it's it's shocking what they have done. They know they have lied because you see, you cannot maintain a lie skillfully without knowing the truth. They all know the truth, and they're lying about it. And Ireland must get rid of themselves of them, and they must. And Ireland must rid itself of the people who run radio, television, Aaron. Uh, that is, I'm partly inspired by a number of people who wrote a book entitled Kula Crease. Just Kula for Kreese. those who may not know, Radio Telefiche Aaron or RT is the state broadcaster in Ireland. Exactly, yes. And they, they did a so-called um, documentary about the War of Independence, 1920-21, on the west slopes of Sleeve Blue Mountains in which two Protestant farmers' boys were killed in their 20s. Um, they tried to claim, the RTE tried to posit it as, the, as, a, as an ethnic cleansing of Protestants or, or religious by Catholics, by Catholic Republicans, and claimed that the, that the killing of them resulted in the division of the land and that they got that land. All of that is false. And people who living in the area, one of whom had already written a book earlier back in the 1930s on the subject, they got together and they tried to effect, Owen Harris was involved in it, by the way, for the, for the big lie operative, another person who was a main, one of Ireland's main enemies. They, they tried to get involved in it to try to bring some truth into it. The local people did, but they were rebuffed. And the lie went ahead, and then it was run as a series on Irish television. And so the local people, with no access to RTE and no access to, to a, uh, similar arms, weapons, they wrote a book entitled Kula Crease. And Kula Crease is the name of the townland in which this Protestant family lived. And so the people got together, and using the documents from, that, from the earlier era, they say, um, IRA uh, orders, uh, British Army orders, local hospital records, local land commission records, uh, local newspaper accounts. They were able to prove that RTE had lied on every single one of its main points. None of the people who were involved on the Republican side got land in, in that couple of hundred acre state when it was divided up. In fact, the local parish priest who is very pro-English was the one who had the dividing up of it. And the first two people to get land on that estate were retired Irishmen who had served in the British Army. So you can see how that whole thing worked out. So I'm, I, I remain inspired by them. They're wonderful people, the authors of this book. Kula Crease, I recommend it to your readers. Kula Crease, that the, a one-word title of a book, Kula Crease, C-O-O-L-A-C-R-E-A-S-E. The name of the townland on the western slope near Cadamstown, on the on the western slope of uh, Sleep Bloom. So the lie goes on, uh, mostly from prof- from uh, official sources. <laughs> it's it's odd to say that the truth tellers in Ireland are marginalized. They're the majority of the people. The majority of the people have an inkling, and they know a lot about what's going on these days. But they they're overwhelmed by the news media. Oh, let me, a little aside here. When Ireland was rid by the British government of its English landlords, they failed to rid their nation of the, of the owners of the media, of the owners of the insurance companies, the banks, the advertising agencies, and the stockbrokers. They all remained. 
in ascendancy hands and they remain there to this day. And that's telling in itself because that is, I suppose, the most overwhelming facet of the power structure that exists. So, I mean, while the the more overt centres of control were visibly removed, the more covert ones remained in place and they're overwhelmingly the more powerful or the stronger, I think. Yes. When the English Irish left Ireland in 1923, they left this government in, in, in British hands. And in fact, De Valera killed as, as, a, in a, as a head of, of a prime minister of a so-called free nation, he killed more Irish men than were killed by British forces in 1916 and the Rising. And to this day, there are more Irish patriots in prison in Ireland than criminals. No, hang, let me back off that. There are, are 99 patri- patriots, Irish patriots, in prisons on the island of Ireland today. The slight majority of them are in Port Leash. Most of the rest are in McGabbery in the north. So are we, t- are we talking about political prisoners or IRA prisoners? Yes. And all, all the variations of republicanism. Mm. For example, Michael McKevitt was framed for OMA. He had nothing whatever to do with OMA. He was fr- the main evidence in the framing of Michael McEvitt was one of the participants, one of the rehearsers of the OMA bombing, a, a lifelong criminal by the name of David Rupert. Uh, a, Mary and my wife and I have had our own series of, 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 deaths, of, of real problems from the MI5 here in Chicago. And we were framed here, I was framed twice. We were both locked up in the federal lockup in Chicago and we're facing the rest of our lives in prison because the, Irish, the British government and the Irish government want to silence us. So we were facing the rest of our lives in prison, but only because I was very well to do and was able to buy expensive legal uh, support, we were able to prove that the only evidence against us, my wife and I and two others, was an audio tape that the MI5-controlled FBI had criminally fabricated. The FBI agent who fabricated that audio tape was so well well regarded by MI5 that they selected him a couple of years later after we had defeated him in federal court in Chicago. They, They selected him to go to Ireland and participate with MI5 in Ireland. And he left with the lifelong criminal David Rupert, his sidekick, on the evening of August 15th, 1998, the evening of OMA. Mission accomplished. And what do you think the agenda behind the OMA bombing, which is considered in Ireland to be one of the greatest contemporary atrocities that took place, the bombing of men, women and children on a busy high street? It was a mystery to me for almost ever since. But a couple of years ago, there was a book written, uh, Voices from the Grave. It was part of the Boston College project in which two combatants in the, in the conflict in the North spoke at length. One was Darkie Hughes, Brendan Hughes, and the other was David Irvine of the Ulster Volunteer Force, whose group had murdered close to 1,000 Catholics in the North in the previous 10 years. He was brought to the States in 1994 to the White House in triumph. He was brought, as again, he and Jerry Adams were brought to the White House in triumph by the White House, by the U.S. government. While there, and it's in the book, 
and is taped as part of the Boston Project. David Irvine came here believing, like I think most loyalists do, that the United States government is on the side of Irish Republicans. And at one stage, the American government was on the side of Irish Republicans. But he, he was talking to the, what he described, the head of the Britain desk at the U.S. State Department. And, that he, and he made his accusation. The American government has always been on the side of the, of the, uh, the provost, the IR. And the head of Britain desk re- replied, on the contrary, the IRA don't have aircraft carriers. They don't have buccaneer bombers. There's no such thing, but that's what the word he used. And we must sew up, we in the United States government, must sew up the British exchequer so as to free the British, government, the British army to be used in, up our, in our upcoming wars. And David Irvine said, we all looked at him, and he said, Islamic fundamentalism. So the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia and Yemen and Libya were all being planned at that time. He said, that was 1994, and I was not alone. There are other witnesses to what was said there. So that was David Irvine. And I must say, I might not not believe too many loyalist um, uh, terrorist murderers, but I happen to believe his statement there because it doesn't it doesn't build up the British side. It, it was it was it was said in sort of a shock by David Irvine. So why Omar was perpetrated? Uh, it did result, along with the sellout. You see, it resulted in the driving home of the referendum, the Good Friday Agreement referendum that had been voted upon the previous spring. Yeah, in the same 1998. The, the bombing took place in 1990. It drove it home. It, it drove, it, it almost made fugitives out of the McKevitt family, and Mrs. McKevitt is Bobby Sands' sister. And so, and it, it, they, their, their reputations were destroyed by OMA. Republicanism was destroyed by OMA. That resulted in the, in the, in the driving home of the Good Friday Agreement, and there was nothing in the Good Friday Agreement except the sign-over of the six counties, the disputed six counties, to the British government, which was done. Articles 2 and 3 of Ireland's Constitution were gutted. That ended it. The six counties are gone. There's nothing else in it. I was in Ireland at the time visiting my father, and like all Irish households, he received a copy of the Good Friday Agreement just a week or two prior to the referendum. Mm. I read it. It was 67 pages. It was 67 and a half pages of mutual contradictions, aspirational posturing, and bafflegab, except for one-third of a page or so of enforceable text, clear enforceable text. And that was the mandate that the six counties be signed over to the British government. That, is the, that was the only workable part, the only enforceable part of the Good Friday Agreement, in my opinion. This is not my opinion. And, and that, was, that was done. So, and the British Army were essentially removed from Northern Ireland and did participate with the Americans in the, in the American war against Islam. And the war against Islam is, of course, is a war for oil and the spread of American corporations. So that's what OMA was about. According, now again, I can only say according to the evidence. That's, that's what the evidence points to and what the, the words of that State Department head of the Britain desk uh, confirms. For me, it was a mystery. I could not understand how that happened 
and I, I, I was inclined to buy into the notion that it was a mistake on the part of the IRA. I knew that it was a, it was a sixth in a series of town center bombings by Republicans in which the shop owners, all no bloodshed anywhere, all the shop owners got brand new fronts to their all of their buildings. And I thought that this was just one more of the same and that maybe it was a mistake. Maybe they do, couldn't find parking up near the courthouse up the street where they intended on High Street in Alma and all, and all of that. But now, and I get the picture now a, a lot clearer. If it, it, it fitted... Uh, it fitted the purposes of the new empire, the Anglo-American empire. And what then, Chris, was the federal charge that you subsequently beat with regard to speaking out about this? Um, that was in case, uh, U.S. case 91 CR for criminal 911, nothing to do with 911 New York. And in it, um, there were, just like in Ireland, there were two forms of charges. There was the real charges against us in court, and one of them, there were two charges against all four of us. One was threatening the life of an FBI agent, mole, um, an undercover person. And the other was the theft, embezzlement, and purloining of a, of a tape, of a, of a, a recording device. Uh, it is a fact that I, I did get that, and I was able to take it, take, take it aside. And we, and we went, anyways, um, once we proved that they so, uh, but uh, oh, that were they were the they were the charges in in court, in the newspapers the charges were, um, the, the the acquiring of surface to air missiles to be used in Ireland. Well, there's, the there's quite a difference there. <laughs> quite a bit, quite a bit, quite a bit. Well, it's a little bit like the McKevitt trial that we attended in the Special Criminal Courts on Green Street in Dublin, in that. He was charged and convicted of membership, but the second line of every report put out in Ireland's newspapers during the trial was, the real IRA bombed OMA. Yeah. So he was, he was connected up to OMA all the way through, and most people I know think that he was convicted for, for the murder of 29 people in OMA. Well, absolutely. That would be the commonly accepted thing here in Ireland. Yes. So there you have it. And so the, the news media participated in that lie. It is shocking. And Mary and I would go home to our guest house in, out on, on Hoth after the trial and spend the night there. And we'd watch television. And the next day we'd read the newspapers about what we had observed in court. And we could not believe, we could not believe that it was the same event. They were, it was so bad. And by the way, on, during that trial... And, and Rupert gave evidence for over a week, for about, I think it was a week. Uh, and by the way, ahead of him in court was an affidavit from the New York State Police that he was a lifelong criminal. And somehow his, his, his witness was, was accepted by, by a court. This is, is stunning in its depravity. But he described, and, and, and the, the FBI agent Buckley was standing, I hadn't seen Buckley since the day we defeated him in court in 1993 until 2003 at that framing of McKevitt in Dublin. Um, but at that framing, Buckley was standing right behind him within whispering distance of this witness on the stand while Rupert, the witness, was speaking. And Rupert said, uh, my, 
my handler left me alone in Ireland while he flew to the Atlanta Olympics bombing. Uh, that was in, as you know, the Olympics in, it was in 1996. Mm. So he was left alone for a while in 1996, having both been there together from 1994 until the evening of August 15, 1998. But the little side issue is that while in, while in Atlanta, the same FBI agent Buckley, Patrick, quote, Edward, unquote, Buckley, succeeded in framing yet another innocent, the security guard who had found the, the, the bomb-containing backpack and had gotten people as far away from it as they could, but failing to save one, that person was framed by, by this FB, group of FBI men. They didn't do it in court. They did it by telling the news media that he was there. He was the, 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 their suspect. And so he later was awarded some couple of million dollars, uh, but died shortly thereafter. In, in Chicago, we couldn't get a law firm in the whole country to take our, by then, watertight cases for compensation because it, it seemed to have been well recognized that the Oma murder and the crimes by the FBI agent here in Chicago was all aimed at fu furthering U.S. policy of, of its, its wars over in the in, in, uh, Middle East. Mm -hmm. We couldn't get a we couldn't could get not a law not a law not a lawyer nor a law firm in America would take our case. And it was a watertight case. We prove we proved conclusively, scientifically, by means of the most eminent sound engineering lab in the in the Midwest, that the the tape you being used against us was a was a copy of a of a cut and fab and spliced audio tape. They left out the entire it was a we had a, a meeting that went on for a couple of hours. The entire middle of the tape was cut out, leaving nothing but but pre-meeting and post-meeting chit-chat, where everyone was talking together. And there's and and the the prosecution can can tell the jury it says whatever they want to say. So we were able to prove that, and that ended that. The other the other case against me, they didn't lock me up for it, but they did uh, frame me for it. Was the murder of three people. The murderer, a 16-year-old David Bureau, had used FBI agent Lewis's 357 Magnum to kill Mr. and Mrs. Langard and their soon-to-be-born child. The murderer is serving life without possibility of parole in downstate Pontiac Prison, Illinois, for two first-degree murders and a homicide. Uh, I would have been put to death row for the same thing, being older and being connected up with the terrorist IRA, you can see. And so, so uh, I was doomed, but the murderer blabbed through his FBI cover into life without, into life without possibility of parole. Um, the, upon the arrival on the murder scene a, a day or two later by, the, by FBI agent Buckley, the first thing he did was prohibit the local police from pursuing their only suspect, the actual murderer and sent them on wild goose chases against the IRA everywhere. And then he planted into the newspaper, he, he got a, a compliant Chicago news, TV news uh, anchor to say the IRA were involved in that mass murder or the triple murder. And then a few days later, he then framed me for it. So I say my life was saved by an actual murderer. 
And that's, that's what the... Before any of these crimes against us began in Chicago, a schoolmate of mine from Castlereagh, Joe Doyle, from the far side of Castlereagh, who, like me, was born in the States, he had become an FBI agent, and he was here in Chicago. We met only very, very seldom, but we did meet occasionally. He called me up one day and he said, Chris, I've got to talk to you. I said, Joe, you're talking. He said, I can't talk over the phone. Okay, I said, stop over then. He said, I can't talk there either. So I missed it. I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, meet me at the Golden Flame restaurant tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. So Mary and I met him there. He told us our lives were in danger. I said, we don't have any serious enemies. He said, some of my fellow agents have been bribed and subverted by MI5, and they're planning crimes against you. And I said, well, okay, Joe, you're in law enforcement, and we're not. So what are you doing about these crimes? Mm. So when he said there was nothing he could do, and I, I, push, I pushed him on that, he said, it's all, he said, it's all happening over my head. There's nothing I can do. I, Mary and I both, we didn't communicate in front of him, but we both thought there's something wrong with all of this. And if he doesn't know his own oath of office, which requires permanent, absolute upholding of the U.S. Constitution at all times, if he didn't know that part of his own oath of office, it was more likely that he had the whole story wrong or was exaggerating. But the crimes began a month and a half or so later, the murder of the, of the family in Winnetka, for which I was framed. I don't know... I don't think that the FBI were involved in it other than the owner of the, the FBI agent who owned the gun, her husband, who was a lawyer for the murderer, had taken it into his office, he said, to put a handle, a new handle on it. And the, the murderer had sent away for an, an Illinois State firearms owner's license to carry a gun. He was only 16. And his mother, it came in the mail to him, and his mother found it and gave it to the lawyer to hold. This 16-year-old had a lawyer because he was already facing charges for shooting other people with a BB gun. And by the way, he had told his classmates his, his goal in life was to become a hitman for the mafia. That's what he intended to do. So in any event, he... Uh, but all of that was covered. So it seems then that the, the, the gun was stolen from the husband's office, the drawer of an FBI agent who owned the gun, and the gun must have been noticed as missing. And when there was a murder in that little village of Winnetka, a northern suburb of Chicago, everyone must have looked around to see where their guns were, at least become aware. And, and this man's, and this man, this man's uh, client, the 16-year-old shooter, uh, the lawyer must have wondered, is, is my client involved? But nothing was ever done about it. Uh, the FBI agent whose gun was missing was found in the, in the house of the murderer months later, six months later, and the murderer was kept on the street for six months by these people. The FBI agent was never charged with failure to report her gun missing. She's a female FBI agent. Mm -hmm. And the, the lawyer husband was never charged with failure to, re, to, to, to do the same thing or failure to notice that uh, the local shooter might be the one who had shot these other people. So all of that has been left unpunished. So it, makes, it leads one to believe that the purpose was, it was, as the U.S. State Department says, to further American empire interests.
part of that Omar, part of it, and this is, can be readily found, the, there was a phone call made or two phone calls made and all, all phone calls to, off, to uh, RUC offices were all taped. The tape was transcri- transcribed over to a logbook. Neither the tapes nor the logbooks could be found shortly after the bombings. And, and these, these uh, uh, deaf RUC men in Oma who somehow couldn't quite get it right, they were given George medals. Interesting. And that's one of the highest British awards, is my understanding. But the stench from that was so great that the British government decided instead of giving it only to the OMA uh, accomplices, we'll give it to every RUC man in the in that exists. And that so that was done. They spread it out over everyone because the stench was too great. That's a the loss of the of the, both the tapes and the logbook speaks for itself. Why are they missing? They contain information, evidently, that break that that destroys the story, the story of the the guys in the car bomb who couldn't find a parking place. Chris, before we let you go, give us details on the book and the website and how people can find out more about the work that you do. Right. The the book is is, um, Ireland, 1845-1850, The Perfect Holocaust, and Who Kept It, quote, perfect, unquote. It's being printed now. I think the printing must be completed in Dublin, and I've donated this because I couldn't handle the sales of it over there. It is self-published. I've donated to the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and uh, John Robinson in Dublin has the distributing of the book along with uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They have the distributing of it uh, to their benefit. I, I understand they will also, I'm using exactly one half the purchase. Everything I sell in the States, one half of the price of it goes to fund another monument over a mass grave in Ireland. We have the next. We just installed another one in Castle Contras Common on the 16th of March. We finally got up. It took nearly a decade of overcoming, and that's why I hope that the priest can do that. The Florida priest will be able to do that. He'll be able to overcome that that lying priest in Northwest Mayo, mm. and we'll shame him. We'll shame him into accepting a truth-telling memorial. I'm demanding, by the way, that any memorial that be put over, over over these mass graves, at least anyone that I have anything to do with, must name the regiment or regiments that stripped the area of foods. That's the minimum. We don't have to use any, any um, adjectives or, or epithets. All we have to do is name the regiments. That will speak adequately. So where, where am I going with this? Um, so the book is there. Irish, and go to irishrepublicanbrotherhood.ie www.irishrepublicanbrotherhood, all one word, dot I-E. And another very good one is Billy Maguire, all one word, M-C-G, billymaguire.com. Both of those are, are, uh, are fine lead-ins to where, where Ireland needs to go these times. And I'm hoping that the people of Ireland will soon summon their national self-respect, not necessarily become militant, but become more concerned about the truth and become less willing to listen to acquiesce to lies. Well, here's hoping. Chris Fogarty, it's been fantastic speaking to you on Alchemy Radio. The website, again, is irishholocaust.org. We have the links up on the site. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to speaking again in the future. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Very good, Joe. 
on a single day on a single day on a single day a list of exports from Cork Harbour on a single day the 14th of September 1847 ran as follows 147 barrels of pork 986 casks of ham 27 sacks of bacon 528 boxes of eggs 1,397 firkins of butter 477 sacks of oats 720 sacks of flour 380 sacks of barley 187 head of cattle 296 head of sheep and 4,338 barrels of miscellaneous provisions On a single day the ships sailed out from Cork Harbour with their bellies in the water on a single day in Party County Galway, the great majority of the poor located there were in a state of starvation, many of them hourly expecting death to relieve their suffering. On a single day, the Lady Mayoress held a ball at the Mansion House in Dublin in the presence of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Dancing continued until the early hours and refreshments of the most varied and sumptuous nature were supplied with inexhaustible profusion on a single day. On a single day. On a single day. It's about time this little country of ours had a bit of peace. By a lonely prison wall I heard a young girl calling Michael, they have taken you away For you stole Trevelyan's corn So the young might see the morn Our prison ship lies waiting in the bay Once we watched the small free birds fly Our love was on the wing 
dreams and songs to sing Been so lonely around the fields of Appenheim By a lonely prison wall I heard a young man calling Nothing matters, Mary, when you're free Against the famine and the crown I rebel, they cut me down Now you must raise our child with dignity Once we watched the small free birds fly Our love was on the wing We had dreams and songs to sing It's so lonely around the fields of Athenry By a lonely harbour wall she watched the last star falling As the prison ship sailed out against the sky For she lived in hope and pray For her love in Botany Bay It's so lonely around the field songs to sing It's so lonely Round the fields That Thank you Thank you very much Our Hopefully you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on your donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format. And we're very, very grateful for any and all help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on the donations, so donate as little or as much as you like, and it all helps to keep us afloat. Our donate button is on the website, and support and assistance, of course, is hugely appreciated. And thank you indeed to everybody for your recent help and support. We couldn't do it without you. So then, until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy. Alchemy. Care. Will. Intelligence. Imagination. 